Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 2nd, uh, 2022. Regular viewers on the show know we've been doing quite a lot of history recently. Over the weekend, I all... Uh, uh, I interviewed Alan Judd um, on one of the most fascinating mysteries of the Elizabethan age, the death or perhaps murder uh, of the great writer Christopher Marlowe. Uh, and then a couple of weeks ago, um, I had um, Kat Jarman, the historian archaeologists of the Vikings on the show. She has a wonderful new book out called River Kings. Uh, talking about the origins of Viking power and culture in the United Kingdom. And Kat suggested uh, my guest today. Many of you will be familiar with his name. He's a best-selling writer and quite a personality from a, a famous family. His name is Charles Spencer, and he has a best-selling new history book out called The Winter Ship, uh, sorry, not The Winter Ship, The White Ship, Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry I's Dream. It's not so much of a mystery, perhaps, as a nightmare. And I'm thrilled that uh, Charles is joining me. Charles, where are you talking to me from today? I'm at Althorpe, which is my family's home. Um, we've been here for uh, quite a time, and it's about uh, 70 miles north of London. Little house, right, just outside London, Charles? Yes. Uh, well, not little bit. I know what you're meaning. Uh, it's a historic house. We built it. We were sheep farmers and we built this place in 1508. Well, the white, uh, the white ship, um, like all thought perhaps, is a, a, a relic of, of, of the past, uh, although the white ship isn't around anymore. What was the purpose in writing the book, Charles? Is it, um, is it a mystery? Uh, as a historian like Kat, are you an archaeologist? Are you solving something? Um, or are you simply recounting a story that most of us aren't actually that familiar with? It's more the latter. Uh, I like to bring back into a, a more mainstream area stories which I think have been wrongly forgotten or semi-forgotten. I've always known this story. You know, I'm, I'm in my late 50s, and when I was growing up in England, history was a compulsory subject. And we got quite a broad base of learning. Uh, that's not the case now. You know, it tends to be Hitler and Henry VIII for history courses here. I'm and sensing a, a little bit of nostalgia, Charles. Do you think people should be required to study history in the schools? I think they lose out by not having uh, an appreciation of the past that goes beyond the, the the very obvious. And I get that, though. I'm not I, I, nostalgia. Possibly, but realism too. I realise that because history is no longer compulsory, teachers have to present a, a series of topics that's going to fill their classroom. So it's just it's reality. But for I feel very lucky. I suppose that's the thing. I feel very lucky to have had this broad base. And I was giving a talk to a, a group of American uh, history enthusiasts in a castle in England uh, a few years ago, and I, I, I wove in the story of the White Ship very briefly. And they, that was I think that was the only part they came alive for. That was what they were interested in. And so I realized it was a good story. And then about four or five years ago, I looked, I was reading up on it again, and I suddenly realized the 900th anniversary was coming up. So I thought I would write the uh, the book to go along with that. It's a remarkable story um, of 
what might have been. Um, you claim, I think, that it's perhaps the greatest maritime catastrophe in, in English history. Is that something that you want to explain? Why it was such a disaster when this white ship went down? Yes, when I say that, people go, well, what about Titanic? You know, 1,200 people died or whatever it was. They didn't make a movie of that, Charles, did they? Although I'm sure they will eventually, after this book, make a movie of the white ship. It's funny you say that, because I have, I, obviously, you know, with books, you get lots of uh, semi-inquiries or whatever, and I had one of those today. Uh, but somebody else is trying to to make the movie. But who knows? I'm, I'm my, my wife was previously married to a Hollywood producer, and she said, wait until the first day of filming. But with this one, I think, I'll tell you why I think it's the most important. It's not because of the numbers of lives lost, although that's, there were 350. Uh, it was because of who died in this tragedy. And the most important person on board was the grandson of William the Conqueror. He was called William as well. He was the Prince of England, the only legitimate prince in the royal line. Yeah, he's known as Adeline or Aisling. That's um, it. And, and so he, that's the equivalent of Prince of Wales now. So he was the designated successor to King Henry I. And Henry I is not, a, is not in the fore, forefront of the kings of England, but I think in many ways he should be. He, he, he was an innovator and, and a very organized man. And in fact, he set up the, the Exchequer, which is still the, the name of the uh, English Treasury now. So That very... was quite an achievement. I mean, what was he, a centralizer? Was he a warrior, Henry I? He was an all-rounder, and he was vicious. And I think that sounds... I, I, for our stomach, he was quite strong. Uh, but for these times where you needed a very powerful man to take control, he was just right. How would he compare, for example, um, Henry I with Henry VII, the father of Henry VIII, who is sort of best known, I guess, as the father of a, a more centralized English state, uh, one of the Tudors, one of the early Tudors. Well, I'd not thought of that, but they're very similar. They set about uh, doing things in a way that worked. So Henry VII had, the, for instance, the Court of the Star Chamber, which was a way of bringing royal authority into the provinces of England by bringing proper judges uh, on, on a sort of trail around the country to make sure justice was dished out in the king's name. And Henry I did the same. You know, he was seen as a, 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 a very judgmental, strong king. He looked at the laws of England and made them, he, he almost codified them so they were understood by uh, all the land. But the key, the key change was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And, and he had a very, unlike Henry VII, he had a very aggressive and successful uh, foreign policy against the King of France. So, Charles, give me a, a snapshot of of, of this England um, in 1120 or 11, was it 1120 or 1122 when? Yeah, 1120. When the when the Henry the First was king, um, how many people lived in the country? It wasn't the United Kingdom because he, how much of the country of, of what we now think of as Great Britain did Henry the First actually rule? There are about one and a half million people here in 1120, and um, the aristocracy and the head of the church would tend to be of Norman birth. Um, the average person was living a pretty brutal life. Christianity was thriving. 
the Norman kings, we, we forget this, but William the Conqueror, apart from being a great warrior, was a, a very pious man of God, and his son, Henry the, uh, the I, continued this. He was a great builder of monasteries and abbeys. Um, it was a tough place. You needed a strong king to make sure that the law was obeyed. Uh, there was, uh, they had eradicated by this stage, uh, slavery had gone, the Anglo-Saxon custom of slavery, which the Normans found so distasteful, was denounced in the uh, early 1100s and was being phased out at this stage. And going to your main question, so Henry I was only king of England, he was also Duke of Normandy, but in terms of Britain, he had endless uh, fights against the various princes of Wales, he had very good relations with the various kings of Scotland. He had married their sister, and he, he coexisted with four kings of Scotland who were all his brothers-in-law, and he got on very well with them. And Ireland was a sort of savage and woolly place where there were battles to be had. But he was very clever. He, he married his... Uh, he had many, many illegitimate children. We know of at least 22, which he owned up to. And he used them as pawns and brokers in marriages around Great Britain and, and France and, uh, and nearby areas to build up his influence. What about the social structure? Um, we've had a lot of hard. Marxist historians on the show, Charles, ideas on class struggle. Why did the peasants remain peasants? Were they, were they, um, were they loyal and uh, were they loyal to the king or their local uh, local landowner, how did the social system actually work in, in, in 1120 England? Essentially, um, you're starting with the crown at the, at the very, very top, and then uh, the, the sort of various royal uh, princes and counts would be under that, and then a very powerful aristocracy um, alongside uh, the bishops, who tended often to be of, of noble birth themselves. But the aristocrats that Henry I inherited when he took over in 1100 were what we would consider the old cliche of overmighty subjects. And they, they took on Henry I. They didn't think much of him. He was the fourth son of William the Conqueror. He wasn't expected to become king. And then under that, you didn't have a gentry. You had knights. Uh, it was a very military, uh, what we would consider a feudal society. The people at the bottom, I'm afraid they didn't have a say. They had no power. And they were... Uh, on the whole, they were trying to make a living to keep themselves and their families alive. So uh, a very God-fearing society. Christianity was of a particularly Old Testament flavor. They were believing in a God who was going to smite you down if you did wrong. There was no... Uh, Christ and, and, and the New Testament was not at the forefront. It was, uh, it was pretty old-fashioned fear of a very powerful God. And this was an England, of course, that was or was about to send troops off to the Crusades. What was their attitude to the world? How much of the world was even known? We had Kat on the show talking about the Vikings and her remarkable book shows how the Vikings not only showed up in Britain, but also in Constantinople. How much familiarity was there with the rest of the world? I mean, did they even understand that there was a world, say, beyond France? Yes, they did. I, I was most interested in this, you know, that the, the fact is that England, before the Norman Conquest, was very international. Not just trade, there was trade of wool through Flanders, which was very important for England. But um, beyond that, you know, that there, there was a lot of Norman influence in England uh, through Edward the Confessor, who was the, the last 
king of England apart from the brief reign of Harold, who died in 1066. And um, so essentially, it was a more cosmopolitan society than, than we'd have thought among the elite, obviously. But there the were no cities, were there? I mean, did London even exist? London existed. But it was, a, it was a village, essentially, in 1120, wasn't it? No, uh, London was the only one that we would consider a, 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 a city. So how many Things, people would have lived in London, do you think, in 1120? I honestly don't know, but it would have been in the tens of thousands. But you have to remember, England up until, I mean, I, I, my, my main area was the 17th century. And even in, in the, in the mid-17th century, there was London, Bristol and Norwich were the only places with a population of more than 10,000. So it was a very, very uh, tiny, uh, spread out population and completely different to anything later. But it was a maritime nation. I'm afraid, you know, Bristol was well used as a, a slave port uh, for shipping uh, slaves to and from Ireland. Um, and we had Norwich was important, but essentially London was as ever the, the, the heartbeat of, of England. The shipping element, of course, um, is the heart of your story. We did a show a couple of years ago with the historian uh, Lawrence Burgreen on the relationship between Francis Drake and Elizabeth I. And it's kind of ironic, given the achievements of Britain as a seafaring nation, that your book, The White Ship, um, is about a shipping cock-up, isn't it, Charles? I mean, they, it's yeah. about a ship sinking, not succeeding. I think cock-up's fair. It was, uh, it was all human error. So essentially, uh, in November 1120, Henry I had achieved everything that he had set out to do. He'd been king of England for 20 years. He'd defeated the French. He'd had his son, his one legitimate son and heir, recognised as the future Duke of Normandy and King of England by his uh, great rival, the King of France. And he arrived in triumph in the Norman uh, harbour of Barfleur to come back to England. And while he went on his usual vessel, from uh, Barflow to Southampton, his son and heir and two of his other illegitimate children and the flower of the Anglo-Norman aristocracy and the bureaucrats and generals, they got on the white ship, which was, I suppose, in many ways, the Titanic of its day. It was a splendid vessel that everyone uh, knew about. And unfortunately, when the king, the middle-aged king left at uh, his normal time, the teenage uh, prince stayed behind with his sycophants and courtiers and they got massively drunk and then not for the first or last time in english history uh no that happens Charles. and and and, Especially and amongst the aristocracy right <laughs> well i think england as a whole can can claim that uh un unwanted crown probably uh but at the same time they got the crew drunk and the problem with that was that buffalo was a very good natural harbor but it has a rocky coast outside it, those who know that part of Normandy. It's near Omaha Beach from, from the D-Day landings. And uh, essentially, the helmsman was drunk, the captain was drunk, the oarsmen were rowing very hard, and the captain dropped the sail too soon. And I think everyone lost any idea of how fast the ship, the white ship, was going. And it plowed at full speed into a rock, which is still there, the key berth rock, uh, and went down, and everyone apart from one out of the 350 people on board, uh, drowned. A or... butcher of all things, Charles. A butcher survived. Yes, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think, uh, essentially, I've had to learn a very basic science, not my forte, for this book. But he was wearing something completely different. He was wearing goat skin and sheep skin. And once he clambered out of the, the freezing sea, you know, this is the end of November in the Channel, uh, once he clambered out onto a bit of broken mast,
that gave him a chance of survival because uh, wool will retain some form of heat uh, even when wet uh, from, from the human inside it. So I th it's quite clear that the other, the nobility on board uh, were wearing... You weren't a nation of swimmers back then, were you? Though swimming was almost unknown. The only swimmers I could find were the ones who were directly engaged in fishing, so people who were used uh, by fishermen to retrieve snagged nets, etc. But it wasn't a, a, a leisure activity, and people were terrified of the sea. The, the, the idea was that the worst way of dying, from the literature at the time, the worst way of dying would have been to fall into the sea. Were there any conspiracy theories at the time? This brings to mind the, the downing of that Polish aircraft uh, a few years ago when the, the, the cream of the Polish political class was destroyed and the, the all died and there were lots of conspiracy theories about the Russians and the Germans and the Americans. Um, could, uh, you mentioned, uh, Louis the sixth, uh, his, uh, Henry the first rival, the French King or the equivalent of the French King, otherwise known as Louis the fat, a wonderful name. Um, were there any conspiracy theories that the French were up to their naughty habits when it comes to the Brits, Charles? The only conspiracy theory that's come out of this, uh, subsequently revolves around the one man who of great, of noble birth, who, who got off the ship before it set sail. And he was uh, Henry I's nephew, Stephen of Blois. And the reason why people think this is very fishy is because 15 years later, Stephen of Blois uh, raced across the Channel and became King of England. But the problem with this theory is that many of Stephen's closest relatives died on the ship, people who I'm sure he wouldn't have uh, welcomed their death. And secondly, Henry I, at the time of the ship going down, was known for his huge fertility. Um, you know, as I mentioned, two dozen children. And there was no concept that he wouldn't go on to have more children. He had recently been widowed. As happened, he quickly remarried. And yes, he, he, he did not have any more children, but Stephen couldn't have counted on that. And then also, it would have had to have been a suicide mission. He would have had to somehow persuade the helmsman and the captain to wreck the ship on the rock and die. So I don't, I don't think it stacks up at all. But that has been the one conspiracy theory that's come from this shipwreck. Well, we are talking with Charles Spencer, the author of the best-selling book, The White Ship. It's a bestseller, I think, in the UK. It's just out in the US. I'm sure it's going to be a bestseller here. We're going to take a brief break, Charles. And after the break, I want to talk about the consequences of the, the sinking uh, of the, the white ship, what you call anarchy and the wrecking of Henry I's dream. So hold tight, everyone. Keep tight in your boats. Don't sink. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub 
page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Charles Spencer, the best-selling author of The White Ship. Spent the first half of the show setting Charles up with what England was like in 1120. The ship goes down then, Charles. All lives are lost, including the heir to the throne, um, uh, uh, the son of Henry I, the only legitimate son of, of Henry I. A butcher remains, but he can't take over the throne. What are the, the core consequences? Uh, the subtitle of your book is Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry I's Dream. What exactly was that dream? Was it beyond a dynastic dream? Did he have a vision of England in a 12th century world? His, his aims and dreams would have been those of any monarch at this time, which would have been purely dynastic. Uh, his first duty as a reigning monarch would have been to secure his succession because uh, disputed succession was uh, the seed of anarchy, as he would have known, as, as his contemporaries knew. So and this he was put, a, a Hobbesian anarchy, a wall of all against all. Absolutely. Leviathan and, uh, would, would come into this. And, and the whole concept of duty to one, to a, to a monarch, uh, uh, obviating anarchy. That that was what, uh, they're not thinking in a Hobbesian way, they're thinking much more basically, uh, you did not want the carnage that went with a disputed rule. So his first act pretty much on hearing the news, which polaxed him, you know, he knew this was a personal tragedy. He was a very committed father to his son who died and to the other two children who died on board, illegitimate ones. When you talk about a committed father, Charles, again, you're the historian, but my understanding is that the notion of parenthood and childhood, especially in the 12th century, was entirely foreign to ours. Generally, that's the case. But we do have loving letters from Henry I. He, he spent half of his year, uh, in most years, fighting in, in Normandy to secure, uh, after 1106, when he became Duke of Normandy, he was there an awful lot. And he committed his two legitimate children uh, William Adeline and his daughter uh, Matilda, very much to the care of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And after Matilda, Matilda classically was married off to uh, a, a, a suitable uh, husband in Europe, the Emperor. Uh, and at the same time, the boy William was brought up with a very fond eye by his father, which I totally agree was remarkable and unusual at this time. And um, so Losing his one legitimate son who he loved was a personal and dynastic tragedy. 
And so he quickly married, I mean, literally, I think it's three months after the sinking of the white ship, he married Adelisa of Louvain from the Lowlands, the Netherlands. And she was young and beautiful and seemed to be everything that a man, a king in need of uh, an heir uh, needed. Uh, she stayed with him, the chroniclers say, by his side the whole time, but nothing happened. We, we know that there was nothing wrong with her uh, ability to produce children because she later went on to marry again and had six children. So something happened to Henry I, which meant that he could not produce children with her. And Do you think it might have been the shock of the white ship? Could that have affected his reproductive skills? I, I think that is a, is a possibility. He was also quite old for this period you know he's in how his old early... was he when the white we... ship went down well we don't do you know it's one of those funny things of william the conqueror's children we don't know exact dates for their birth because nobody recorded them but he was probably about 52 which about also... your age yeah, well i'm i'm older i'm 57 but well but, not you know, too much older but back then that was an older age you that know? was a, yeah. a very old man yeah yeah and even the young wife, you know, it wasn't it. Not, not, I, I, I do believe that that's a, a likely cause was depression and possibly impotence or whatever. But who, we will never know that. Um, and then he set about ha trying to have children, didn't produce them, and so he alights on the quite uh, unusual idea at this time of making his one legitimate daughter, Matilda, his successor, not his heir, which is an interesting point. Right. Um, she was really there to hand on the throne in time to his grandson, uh, who was Henry II in the end. And so this was a, trying to get around the tragedy of, of losing your one legitimate heir. What's interesting to me at this time is that w w we're dealing with a new era. When William the Conqueror was a boy, um, he, was, he was William the Bastard, but he could succeed as Duke of Normandy through his father's wish um, as, a, as a boy, even though he was illegitimate. It was controversial, but not impossible. But towards the end of the 11th century, from the 1070s onwards, the papacy reasserted its control over Europe and set about really nailing down some fundamentals. And marriage was one of those keys. And people who were not born in wedlock were basically not allowed to inherit. And so we're, we're dealing with a situation where Henry I's father could inherit as an illegitimate man, but his many illegitimate sons, because it was still a, uh, it was still a male society at this time, uh, they were ineligible for, for the crown. So the real wrecking of the dream was the anarchy, the, the civil war in England, which Henry I most feared, which was essentially triggered by the sinking of the white ship. This lasted between 1138 and 1153. How unusual was this anarchy? I mean, the Middle Ages was defined by these periods of anarchy, weren't they? Well, they were defined by, by bloodshed, um, but this was of a different order. Uh, the chroniclers at the time throw up their hands in despair and they talk of England having been abandoned by God the ground being saturated with blood. And if we take a, a, aside these anarchic views, this sort of apocalyptic views, it was an extremely uh, difficult time for not, not just your feuding lords, because there were two sides in this, uh, in this uh, civil war. 
Uh, one was Stephen of Blois, the nephew of Henry I, who seized the throne, and the other Yeah, was... who eventually became King of England uh, 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 between 1135 and 1154. Yes, and he was a very poor king. People liked him. It's quite interesting at this time that essentially people wanted the, the, the throne of England filled. So when somebody died suddenly, uh, quite unlikely heirs could seize control just because they were possible contenders, but they were there and ready to serve. And the, the whole system of coronation, you know, to us in, the, in this age, it's a very odd concept. But by being anointed in the coronation, you were then seen as being almost, I'd say, so, semi-divine. But uh, the most interesting point about this is that between the death of one king and the coronation of the next, the country was essentially lawless. I mean, you could murder your neighbor and not be held to account for it because you hadn't broken any king's peace. So the, so, so the, the king had so beyond uh, symbolic importance it was the essential glue to social order let's do a, a a counterfactual charles what would have happened if the the white ship hadn't gone down give me a, an, an alternative narrative if the white ship hadn't gone down and assuming william who drowned in that tragedy had gone on to have his children then we would have had a completely different set of kings and queens of england since i mean there wouldn't have been any of the ones we're familiar with. There wouldn't be Richard the Lionheart. There wouldn't have been Henry VIII. There wouldn't have been Elizabeth I or Elizabeth II. It would have been a completely different setup. Now, in terms of the impact of that, the fact that we didn't have a, 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 a sort of Anglo-Norman heir, but instead the country was taken over by the Plantagenets who came from Anjou, the Anjou district of, of France, they brought with them their own set of interests and problems and they brought England into European politics in a very dramatic way because of the, uh, the, the family of Anjou having so many connections in, in what we would consider mainland Europe. I reckon that England would have remained a much more isolated uh, country it would not have become a, a major player in Europe. It would have become a, a, an island in the North Sea that uh, was of mild which it, interest. Which it is now. It may have was once a world power, isn't it? Back to that. Well, Charles? it's certainly not what it was. I'm not going to be. We're back. To we're back in the. That. We're back in the age of Henry the First. Yes. I also think the Reformation would have happened at a different time. It's so. interesting, and I wanted to get to the Reformation. You, you're obviously, you, you get up close to history, Charles. You're watching this stuff from the front row, but there are people who take a, a longer view. I had Joseph Henrik on the show, the, the Harvard scholar. He has a book, The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. In a kind of Viberian sense, he has a theory that the West became of the West because of certain changes in uh, laws associated with who could marry who. Was there a certain inevitability in your view about the rise of the West? And it might, you know, whether or not the white ship would have gone down, Britain would have eventually experienced the Reformation and the Industrial Revolution. I mean, what's your, what's your philosophy of history? Well, my philosophy is probably unformed, but going back to the question, which I think I can, I mean, obviously it's guesswork, but, but I, I, I very well, much- That's the fun of it. We, no one can be proved right or wrong. 
what well, well i believe that the reformation would have happened in england sooner um and it wouldn't have been brought about by a rupture with rome in terms of a king it would have been a, a, a more of a societal shift because i think we'd have been more in tune with the uh the scandinavian uh way of thinking i think that going back to your general question i i look the, England would still have been a, a, a strong maritime country, I'm sure of that. So it would have in time have accumulated an empire because that's what the Dutch did, the Portuguese and the Spanish, the ones with great navies. But I, I think we would have been a lesser power. I think we'd have been a, a very interesting trading state. I, I, I would have seen us more in tune with the Dutch state as opposed to what we actually became. What's your mode of writing history, Charles? Um, you're the author of a number of best-selling books, including Blenheim. Um, this book is doing very well. I, I interviewed uh, a couple of years ago. It was a great conversation with the New York Times columnist Timothy Egan, who did a walk from London to Rome to remind himself, to immerse himself in the Middle Ages. Did you don the clothes or the thinking of 12th century England in the writing of this book? How did you do it? Did you, did you write it at all thought? Did you write it as a British aristocrat? I, so my, 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 if I have a specialist period, because um, I'm a narrative historian, not an academic one, it would be the 17th century uh, and particularly the English civil wars. So it was quite a, I realized it was quite a stretch to go into uh, the medieval era so what I did for a year before researching this book was to read all of the relevant chronicles from the time, just to get my head around their way of thinking. So the, like the civil wars in England, the fundamental point seems to me to be one of uh, different shades of Christianity and uh, and the over, overwhelming belief in, in, in God. But and there was no... The, were there were there central heresies of in 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 twelfth century England? I mean, this was a a pre Reformation Europe. What were yes, the was... what were the the great religious debates of the eleven twenties? Actually, I think I, I structured that wrong, and you're quite right to back up on that. So, not really. Sorry, not so much that, but the intensity were varied. But essentially, your average person was superstitious and religious uh, and you can dice that up how, how you want and that to me was extraordinary you know so the, the, the problem is I suppose what I'm flagging up is the problem with dealing with history from contemporary sources from the 12th century is that they're written by religious people and so you had to unpick the religious bias from the story so for instance in this case the white ship going down uh, the religious writers who recorded it were thinking, well, why, why would God do that to a Christian prince? And their only, the only thing they can come up with was that this poor chap, 17-year-old William Adeline, the prince who drowns, must have been of pretty poor moral fiber. And, and they twist themselves to find this. And, and I don't, I'm, I'm pretty sure, Andrew, none of us would want to be judged for eternity by our 17 year old selves but that's what they've done and so i you have to try and bring your head around from the prejudices i think of intense religious writing uh, and try and bring about a historical understanding so i immerse myself in their thinking 
and then looked at all of that. There aren't that many. There are only really nine chroniclers who 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 uh, covered this uh, particular episode in history in in detail, and look at who was the most historical and who were the ones who were putting a, a, a Christian spin on it all. Of course, most historians have called the 11th, the period of the 1120s when the white ship went down, the Dark Ages. But might we be a little envious, Charles, and maybe in your research, a little envious of the intensity of existence back then, um, the intensity of the religious experience, an intensity that went perhaps with naivety, with an absence of science, with this ubiquity of God. Did you leave the book? with a sense of, well, I wish I could have really been around in 1120 and experienced what it was like to be in a, uh, an early 12th century lord, nobleman, king, or perhaps even peasant. Yeah. Well, it, it, there's the classic problems from the past, which is, you know, when things went wrong in that day, whether it was with your health or in battle, you chose yeah, There were no side. dentists back then, were there? There were no dentists and there was no no mercy either. I mean, that it is an incredibly bloody period. So I, I mentioned earlier how the church had imposed itself a bit. So, for instance, executions of uh, nobility and royalty were frowned upon, but eye gougings and castrations and general mutilation were considered a, a merciful way of, of delivering a similar knockout blow to your opponent. And God, I, there's one man I really sympathize with, this young knight who is captured by Henry I. And Henry I knows that he's been writing ditties about him, uh, mocking his sex life. And Henry gives him the punishment of having his, um, being castrated and having his eyeballs gouged out. And, and understandably, he, he manages to kill himself the night before this happens by smashing his head repeatedly against the wall of his cell. It's brutal. You know, it's really a brutal time. And Henry I is very unlikable. Uh, you can admire him as a king, but my God, you know, he, he, he made two of his granddaughters become hostages to uh, somebody else. And when their mother broke the uh, treaty and had her hostage, who was the son of the other person, blinded, Henry I gave permission for his two granddaughters to be blinded and to have their noses cut off. So I quite like the, the relative backwaters, uh, uh, present problems aside, of, 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 of 2022 over, over what was going on. Uh, yeah, I think most of us, if we want to remind ourselves of what it was like to be around in 1120, we need to read uh, Charles Spencer's new book, The White Ship. I wonder, Charles, whether we also have a kind of unconscious obsession with the Middle Ages. Uh, the Godfather has just been re-released in the United States, and it was the, the top weekend box office. We're fascinated with Game of Thrones. Is there still something that obsesses us about anarchy, violence, darkness? Definitely. I, I think humans are very, very intrigued by how dark they can be as a species and observing it gives them a frisson of uh, a fright, but also thrill. I'm not, a, I'm not very good at Game of Thrones and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I, I, I remember getting palpitations watching 24, so I'm not your target audience for this sort of thing. Um, but I get, I, I, I find man's inhumanity to man 
fascinating what people are capable of doing to each other. Um, not in an admiring way, but just in a sort of uh, jaw to the floor sort of way of, my goodness, we are capable of such dark deeds. Yeah, and we're not even going to get onto the Ukraine, even if that war's going on as we speak. Charles, well, congratulations on this wonderful book, uh, The you, White Andrew. Ship, Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry I's Dream. It's just out in the US. It's already out in the UK and is a, a top, top bestseller. What else, Charles, should people be reading? Uh, on March the 2nd, 2022. What other books would you advise? I've just, I've just reviewed um, a, a book for The Spectator over here. It's called The Normans by a, an academic called Judith Green. It's, it's a, you know, for those who want to get to grips with the, 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 the story of The Normans, basically from becoming uh, pirates to princes, it's good. It is academic, it's rigorous. The one I really recommend, which is coming out in uh, in the UK in the next uh, couple of weeks, is called Oxford. Thought it was at war, and then it was, but it's about. It's called Nearly Brideshead, and it's by a, a classicist actually called Daisy Dunn, and it's a look at Oxford University uh, between the First and Second World War. I picked it up thinking, oh dear, you know, Daisy's a friend of mine. Mm. And I wouldn't enjoy it. It's brilliant. It's utterly brilliant. Can you introduce me to Daisy? I'd love to get her on the show just as um, yeah, it's you were stunningly brilliant. I mean, I read it and, and it's just a it's a masterpiece of scholarly interpretation with humor of a society that's been absolutely pulverized by the First World War and is is loosening up towards dreadful things happening again. So I, I, I thought it's one of the best things ever. And then I'm about to review it. This looks really good. It's called uh, The Siege of Loyalty House. It's by Jesse Childs, who is usually a, a Tudor historian, and it's a brilliant take on the English Civil War of the 1640s, looking at the largest private house in England. It was called Basing House, and how it stood uh, throughout the Civil War until pretty much the end as a symbol of royalist uh, loyalty, uh, but underpinned by Roman Catholicism. The, the entire garrison was Roman Catholic by the end. And it doesn't end particularly well, but it's a hell of a good story because I love, do you know what I love, Andrew, is when somebody can take a whole period and put it through a prism and putting it through the siege of one great edifice is, is really a clever way of looking at the Civil War. Well, that's exactly what you uh, what you have done with uh, the White Ship, uh, Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry the First dream. Charles uh, Spencer, you are well as well positioned as anyone to answer our final question. Charles, um, who runs the world? Who's in charge? Well, I guess it's the, I, 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 I don't think it's the, so much the internet, which I know is a particular interest of yours. I, I, I still think it's the old media bosses, you know, it's the Rupert Murdochs of this world who have immense power and influence certainly uh, presidents and prime ministers with a, 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 a sort of fear of their ability to cause real trouble. 